Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Well, one of my best friends called me a couple of weeks ago, and we've just been busy doing ministry over the years. He's a pastor like I am. And so we, you know, haven't been in constant contact, but I have such fond memories of my first years knowing him and relating to him because his testimony was so different than mine. He came to Christ at about the same stage or season of life that I came to Christ, 18, 19 years old, but his whole background was so different from mine. I grew up here on California's central coast. He had grown up mostly in New York in the Bronx. Uh, I'd grown up with a mom and dad who had taught me certain values, and his upbringing was just so different than mine. He had learned things in a different way when it came to sex and finances and how to treat other people and human dignity and value. And so for him, it was so fun to watch him in his new Christian life embrace a new spiritual family, where in that family he learned how to handle finances. He learned how to treat the opposite sex. He learned how to honor other human beings. And here as we turn to Hebrews chapter 13, this is part of what the author is giving to us. How is the Christian community to live together? Now this is an important thing, not just for their era, but for our era as well. 64% of Americans today say that family ties are eroding in their nation. And in other nations that are also polled, 58% of other respondents say the same thing, that the family seems to be disintegrating. You see, for many people, they can't turn to their biological family, but they can turn to the family of Christ. And, And the author here, I almost said Paul, the author here of Hebrews thinks about this and says, this is what I want you to do. Verse one, let brotherly love continue. You see, in this epilogue of Hebrews chapter 13, the author is going to give to us some instructions and sort of the overarching theme of all these instructions that we just read and prayed about a few minutes ago is simply this, let brotherly love continue. That word brotherly love is the word Philadelphia. It means tender affection for those from the same womb. You see, this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ produces. A group of people who look around at each other and say, we didn't come from the same womb. We didn't come from the same background. We didn't come from the same history, but we are now one in Christ Jesus. It is as if you and I have been born from the same mother together. And so the author says, let brotherly love continue. This is the first thing that we need to embrace this morning from the passage. We need to, number one, love one another. You see, there should be a culture within the local church of familial love for each other. All right, now we talk about this all the time, so I'm just going to give you, before I move on into the expressions of what this love looks like from this passage, a handful of observations about Christian love that I've experienced and just realized in my own life. First of all, one observation is this. It's 
an incredible opportunity, Christian love, because it does something that so often other human beings don't get a chance to experience. It takes you so often outside of your race, your age group, your income level, your educational level, and your geographic boundaries. You see, all of those things that I just mentioned are things that so often people are confined to. You know, I'm in relationship with people who only look like me, or I'm in relationship only with people who are in my same age bracket, or I'm in relationship with people who are in the same income bracket that I'm in, or have the same educational background that I have, or live in the same geographic area that I live in. But in the body of Christ, Jesus breaks down all of those walls, and we come together from all cross-sections of humanity to love and serve and worship Jesus together. And this, brothers and sisters, is so exciting. This is like the spice of life, so to speak, to instead of just monotonously be trudging through the same rut throughout all of our lives, through Christian love, being able to live an exciting life that takes us beyond some of the things that we might be confined to without the gospel of Jesus Christ. A second observation that I have about Christian love is this, and it's probably connected to that first observation I made, but a second thing that I've observed about Christian love is that it is sometimes very awkward. Nervous laughter in the room. You see, because we're so different from each other, and think about it like this, Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is designed to attract people who are conscious of their sin and shame and feel a sense of need before God, because of that, when we come together, there are bound to be awkward experiences and moments as the differences are highlighted between us. Sometimes people will ask me if I collect anything, and one of my standard answers is, yeah, as a pastor, I collect awkward moments. There are just times in the church where you just look and you go, wow, that happened. I can't believe she said that. I can't believe he did that. I can't believe that it happened. It wasn't sin, but it was just uncomfortable. It was just awkward. It wasn't something that I, in my own self, was used to, but because of being in the body of Christ, loving each other, I've been pushed beyond my comfort zone. Another thing about Christian love that I've observed is that it is impossible unless we devote some time and space in our life's rhythms to it. You see, what he's saying when he says, let brotherly love continue, he's not saying, have a feeling. Just have a general feeling. Go about your life as normal, but have a feeling of love for other people. No, the sense in his heart is that this is an action word. And in order for us to have the time uh, to act out our love for each other, we're going to have to create space in our life's rhythms. We'll have to prioritize Christian love and relationship in order to love in this way. And then a fourth observation that I have, and this will be my last one before we move on into verse 2. And some of you won't understand what I'm talking about with this because you've never heard teaching on Romans 14 and 15, but I think that Christian love is helped when groups of believers have a solid understanding of the teaching in Romans 14 and 15. In Romans 14 and 15, Paul, who was writing to the Roman church, 
which covered you know, every group known to man in the world at that time living in Rome, as he wrote to them, he thought about how hard it would be for these people who'd come from everywhere to coexist together as a church. And so in Romans 14 and 15, he talked to them about not black and white areas in Scripture, but gray areas in Scripture that some Christians would have convictions about and other Christians would not have convictions about. Liberties, gray areas in the Bible. And he talked to them about not judging each other, tolerating each other, loving each other, and appreciating each other's convictions, but letting each other stand on their own two feet before the Lord. So I'd encourage you to study, to read, to think about Romans 14 and 15. And if you've never heard any good teaching on Romans 14 and 15, I know a guy. I've taught Romans 14 and 15 quite a bit. And so I'd encourage you to go and check out some of those teachings because I think that that understanding is greatly helpful for Christian love in our modern era. All right, so that's the general concept. Love each other. But how can we do that? Well, number two, we need to be hospitable. Be hospitable. Let's read verse two again. We already read it. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, one of the questions that you have to ask when you're reading through scripture and you come to commands like these is what would the original hearers have received from these exhortations. When they heard about hospitality to strangers, what were they thinking of? More than likely, they weren't thinking about, you know, just having coffee over at their house uh, or a couple of hours here or there, although we'll get to that in a moment. Most scholars believe that the problem that was being solved through the hospitality here in Hebrews 13, verse 2 was the problem of Christian witness throughout the world, and that as missionaries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers went out throughout the first century world to preach the gospel, the problem that they had was lodging. They didn't know where to stay. The motel or the inn of their era was often dangerous, expensive, and often had a very bad reputation attached to it, the kind of place that a Christian worker or servant would not want to stay in or at. So it seems that one of the problems that's being solved here is that as these strangers who were proclaiming the name of Christ came into their town, these Christians were to open up their homes to make a place for them to stay so that the gospel could advance in their community. So maybe a way for us to think about this exhortation would be to ask this question. How can we use our places of living, our homes, for gospel advancement in our era? What problems exist today that our hospitality can solve to help the gospel run free? Well, I've got four suggestions for you. Number one, I think that we can use our homes, those of us who are walking with the Lord, strong in Christ, as a space where we can be great examples to others who are in need of a living example of what it, what it is to live for Jesus in this modern world. I remember years ago, Christina and I, when you know, we had, we'd had our children already, but 
there was a young woman that had grown up in our youth ministry and her family was a little bit fractured. And there was just a window of time where she needed a place to live. And she came and she just lived with us. And we had a little room that she could stay in and, and uh, she would eat our food and stuff like that. And she was just so sweet and everything. But there was just a season there where she was in our home. And, you know, we didn't think all that much of it. It was just kind of a little season of life to help her get on her feet and everything. But even now today, she will tell us that season of my life, as I watched the way that you parented, as I watched the way you treated each other, I learned so much about marriage. I learned so much about family that I'm applying today in my own adult life with my husband and my children that God has given to me. You see, sometimes it's just an example that people need. Another way that we can use our homes for the furtherance of the gospel is as a place of refuge for those who are weary. I mean, life is not easy, is it? Sometimes life just beats you up, chews you up, spits you out. And sometimes a home, uh, someone else's home can just be a place of rest for someone else's life. I know for me, when I go to life group, you know, our, our life group, they have this thing where when we walk into the home that's the host home, you kind of have to like go through the like, there's like the fake living room, you know, that like no one's ever in, you know, the front room, there's some furniture, there's the fake living room, then you go through and it's the kitchen and that's where everybody hangs out. And then you get through the kitchen into the dining room and then there's like the real living room. And for me, like when I walk in the door, we meet on Wednesday nights, I'm usually pretty tired by Wednesday night, you know, I'm getting older and I just like feel it. And for me, like when I open that front door, my mission is to get to the real living room. That's like my whole goal, you know? So I'm like trying to push past the kitchen and the hellos and the hugs and all that. Cause I'm like, I gotta get to that couch, man. <laughs> That's what I need to do. Just someone else's home. I'm not having to take care of things. I can just sit down, talk, just, uh, you know, drink some coffee and just be together. So often we can use our homes as a place of refuge uh, for people who are weary or lonely, or in need of encouragement. Another way that we can use our homes for the furtherance of the gospel is to use our homes as centers for evangelism. Now, I don't want to scare you by that. I don't want you to be thinking in your mind, like, okay, that means I got to invite people who don't know Jesus over, and like during that time, we're going to have like a gospel presentation. You know, we're going to have dinner, and then dessert, and then all of a sudden, I'm going to be like, I'd like to share some things with you right now, and it's going to get awkward and all of that kind of stuff, and maybe the Lord will lead you to do that kind of thing in some supernaturally natural kind of ways. But what I'm talking about is simply the breaking down of the barriers that so often exist in people's minds. So many people are believing lies today about believers that they are hate-filled human beings who don't care about their fellow man. And so often as you're sitting in a home with someone else who doesn't believe as you do, you're able to demonstrate that there is love that you have from your heart to them because Jesus has placed it inside of you. Now, a fourth place or way that we can use our homes for Christian hospitality is this. We can use our homes at times for the making of disciples. To me, this is different than just being an example or giving a place of refuge for someone else in the Christian life. There are times where the best place to sit down and get into something real tricky, where the best place to sit down and talk about a, another person's life, to give input and counsel, 
is right there inside your home. I found that some of the hardest things I've ever had to say to other human beings is best delivered when I'm on my, in my chair and they're sitting on my couch. Because it's like, I love you. I love you. You know I love you. You know I care about you. You're here in this room, but there's something serious that we need to discuss. Now, like I said, this requires margin in your time, in your space, in your finances. Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and in it she said, practicing radically ordinary hospitality necessitates building margin time into the day, time where regular routines can be disrupted but not destroyed. This margin stays open for the Lord to fill to take an older neighbor to the doctor, to babysit on the fly, to make room for a family displaced by a flood or a worldwide refugee crisis. Living out radically ordinary hospitality leaves us with plenty to share because we intentionally live below our means. And what she means by that is not just below our means and finances, but also in time and space. So there's room in our schedules and finances and space for others. Now, you probably noticed when I read this thing about hospitality in verse 2 that there's this little line that he says there at the end of verse 2, thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Did you read that and kind of say to yourself, like, now what is that all about? You see, in the Old Testament, he's writing to Hebrew Christians, after all, who are very familiar with the Old Testament, there were a handful of times where people like Abraham or Lot hosted people into their homes only to learn later that they were divine messengers. So what is the author saying right here? Is he saying, hey, here's a great motivation for practicing hospitality. One day, you might get an angel. Is that what he's saying? I know some people who think that's what he's teaching. Hey, be nice to humans, not because they're humans, but because they might be an angel. That's not what the gospel teaches. That's not what he's trying to encourage them with. No, the motivation isn't, hey, maybe angels will come over. But the motivation is this. There might be a beautiful reward that you didn't see coming if you give yourself to hospitality. I'm sure many of you have had the experience of what it's like to come home from a long day at work and spend five or six hours on yourself only to go to sleep that night feeling less whole than when you began. I can't believe I watched that much TV. I can't believe I ate that much food. I can't believe I did all of that. I'm more exhausted now than I was when I began this rest fest. But it might be that as you have someone over, as you bring them into your life, as you spend time with them, as you encourage them, you might go to bed fatigued in a different kind of way, but enriched within your soul, understanding that something beautiful happened as you cared for and loved someone else. All right, let's move on into verse three together. I'll let you guys pray about the hospitality one, but let's go into verse three and see the next thing. We need to remember prisoners is the third thing that we're gonna look at today. He says, remember, verse three, those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Now again, the question we have to ask is, what would the original hearers have been thinking when they received some of these exhortations? 
In other words, who were these prisoners that they were supposed to remember? Now, earlier in the book, you might remember in chapter 10, he talked to them about how they were being persecuted and how some of them had been thrown in prison and some of them had their goods taken away from them and that they were all suffering together. So the the context of the whole book of Hebrews seems to indicate these prisoners are not just prisoners in general, but they are Christian prisoners, not even just Christian prisoners, but prisoners who are believers but they become prisoners because they proclaim the gospel. In other words, they were thrown in jail because they were messengers for Jesus. But that being said, I think it is still the heart of Christ that we would be a people who, whether someone's a prisoner because of their gospel witness, or a prisoner who is a Christian, or a prisoner who's not a Christian, across the board it is good for believers to remember those, he says in verse 3, who are in prison. You see, the gospel teaches that human beings, no matter what they've done, no matter where they've come from, no matter their background, are made in the image of God and therefore have worth upon them. The cross of Jesus Christ shows us that God loves every human being that walks on the face of the earth. So we're to be a people who honor human beings including, he says here in verse 3, those who are prisoners. Now, he does say, remember the prisoners. Now, it's clear, though, that he doesn't just simply mean, what I want you to do is every once in a while, when you're thinking about things, have a recollection that there are prisons and that there are people inside those prisons. Remember the prisoners. Oh, I remembered them. There we go. I fulfilled the commission of Hebrews 13.3. No, he means something more than that. He's talking about action. Now, in their era, they likely had easier access to those who were imprisoned than we would in our era. So what can we do in our modern times to remember the prisoners? Okay, I have a few suggestions for you. You're not surprised by this, are you? Here are some of my suggestions. One would just be, and I'm sure you've heard of prison ministries before, different ministries that are going into prisons, teaching the word, holding church services, discipleship classes, sometimes even seminary level education, uh, you know, classes to instruct, inform, and teach those who are in prison. And you might, in your lifetime, at different seasons, be involved in prison ministry or support prison ministries that exist. Another way would be to support Christian media. And what I I mean by that is recorded and broadcast Christian media or print Christian media because so often it's these medias that get themselves behind bars and into the hearts of men and women who are incarcerated. Another thing that you can do is support or be involved in ministries that are not going behind bars so much as they're helping those who are paroled. Uh, Because that can be a real difficult time in a man or woman's life. And so to bring in discipleship and teaching and instruction at that point of their lives is of great help. Another basic thing that Christians can do to remember the prisoners is to present a loving and welcoming spirit for those who are released from prison who then come into the church, into the body of Christ. It's important for every person to feel warmly invited and loved and accepted, including those 
who were previously in prison. Another thing that we can do is to engage in teaching, biblical teaching for sure, but also uh, just regular education, sometimes behind bars, sometimes for people that are on parole, and preaching which elevates the hearer. You see, it's not for someone who's incarcerated to drum up self-worth from inside saying, I'm worth something. No, it's for them to receive the message of the gospel which says, God says that you're worth something. God places his value upon you. And then there might be, for some of us, a shift of a wrong perspective that needs to take place. For instance, if you say of someone who is in prison that there is no hope for them to be changed and transformed, then you have not begun to understand the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that perspective would need to shift inside of you. Another wrong perspective would be to say, I don't want to interfere with their punishment. You know, they did the crime, they must do the time, but I don't want to interfere with that punishment that they're receiving. I don't think that that's quite the heart of Jesus. I think he would love for us to go and to reach and love and to care for the prisoner. We all understand that we are criminals in a sense in the sight of God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, but we need the gospel of Christ, his forgiveness and grace to elevate us afresh. Another wrong perspective would be to say, They are not my responsibility. Listen, when Jesus came to earth, aren't you glad that he said, aren't you glad that he didn't say, I'm only going to deal with that which is my responsibility? Aren't you glad that he said, I'm going to take responsibility for all of your sins, the sins of the world, that they are responsible for, and take them into my own body upon the cross? You see, when you become a Christian, one of the things the Spirit is trying to drive forward in your life is a Christ-likeness. And part of what Jesus is like is he takes responsibility for others. A believer says, you know, I, there are people that God is going to place into my life and into my heart, and I will take some responsibility for them. So those are some ways that we can uh, care for, remember the prisoner. All right, let's move on to verse 4, though, in Hebrews chapter 13, and see this Next line, a fourth thing that we need to do is to honor marriage. Honor marriage. This is what should be happening in the body of Christ. There should be an honoring of marriage. Let's read the verse again. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. All right, let's think about this phrase by phrase. First of all, notice the beginning of verse 4. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all. In other words, he just looks at the whole church and he says, look, whether you're married or unmarried, everybody in the body of Christ should have this respect for, reverence for, appreciation for marriage. And why should there be amongst God's people a respect, a reverence, an honor for and towards marriage. Well, think about it like this. I mean, partly because he tells us to right here. But think about what we believe about the universe. We believe that God 
created all things, that he created man, saw that he was alone, said it's not good for him to be alone, so created woman from him, and brought them together in the first marriage. In that moment, what you had was one man and one woman that God placed together. It's it's as if what God is saying is, look at my creation. It is hardwired into creation itself that this marriage between a man and a woman is something that I honor, that I respect, that I have instituted. In fact, even when we look not just at the book of Genesis, but the biology that God has given, the anatomy that God has given to men and women, we're able to understand that it is written in the cosmos that this thing is good. In fact, there have been cultures like in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s that tried to delete the institution of marriage between men and women from their society and culture And what ensued was catastrophic. The culture, the world just could not move forward without it. It's written within the fabric of the cosmos that marriage is a good thing for humanity. But everyone in the church, whether married or unmarried, is to have a respect for it, an honor for it, an appreciation of its value. Look, I know that Many, if not most, of the church is going to be unmarried in our modern era. You know, we live in a time where over half of the population is, lives in an unmarried state. And anyone who's unmarried in the body of Christ should be honored, loved, and never treated as less than in the church. But in that unmarried state, people who are unmarried should also honor marriage though they don't engage in it themselves. One way to make sure that you, as an unmarried person, honor marriage is to make sure that you don't get lifted up with pride in your own heart for your unmarried state. We all know Jesus was single, and Paul was single, and many others, like John the Baptist. I mean, he wore animal skins and ate bugs, so we think he was probably single. (laughs) There are many others who lived the single life so that God could use them to the max. And just because you're on Jesus' team or Paul's team doesn't mean you should be lifted up in pride against those who have entered into a, a marital relationship. But we are to honor, to, to respect, to have a reverence for marriage. He says there, though, in verse 4 of it, one way that we can honor marriage is to Let the marriage bed be undefiled. This is a major way to honor marriage, to keep the marriage bed, the sexual union between a man and a woman, unsoiled and uncontaminated. Now, I'm going to talk about this for a second. Some of you are going to get uncomfortable, uh, and this might get a little bit awkward, but we're going to talk about this because it's in the Bible. You see, a common view that people have of Christianity is that it is repressive, and anti-sex. You know, that what you see in the Bible is this big book that's like, don't do that. (laughs) That's not good to talk about. That's not good to think about. But the reality is what we believe is that God is the one who actually invented sex between man and woman in the first place. Let me read to you 
some scriptures. I think we'll put them on the screen for you as well, just to give you a little taste of what scripture teaches. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, which many modern translators have a tough time with because it's very straightforward. So I'm going to quote from the New Living Translation. says, The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. Many people read that in Scripture. They're like, whoa, I didn't know there were verses like that in the Bible. But there it is. From Paul the Apostle, a single man giving great instruction to married couples. Or here's one from Proverbs chapter 5, where a father is speaking to his son. He says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. It's a father speaking to his son and saying, hey, son, in your married relationship, enjoy your physical union with your wife. Enjoy her body. Don't be distracted with anybody else. Enjoy her and her alone. The Song of Solomon, which is so straightforwardly about a romantic relationship between a husband and a wife all the way into the bedroom scenes, it's so about that and so blatantly about that that it created such awkwardness for some Bible translators over the years that they tried to make it into an allegory about God's love for his people, Christ's love for his church, which in my mind makes it even more awkward (laughs) than it would have been just to take it at face value. That song begins with the bride singing, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And with that, they were off to the races, complimenting each other, loving each other, and talking about the physical relationship that they would enjoy together, that they'd be basically intoxicated, not with wine, but with each other physically. It got to a point in the song where the husband sang this, Song of Solomon 4, verse 6, he said, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, so all night long, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh in the hill of frankincense. It was his way of describing his wife's body. We are going to enjoy each other all night long is what he was saying there in that verse. The whole Bible begins with God creating And like I said, man and woman being created by God, God putting them together in the first marriage. And look at this, Genesis 2, verse 25, before sin entered into the world, before the fall took place, it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It was not a dirty thing, it was a beautiful thing. It was not something that they felt ashamed by, they just were with each other, there was no shame. We could go on and on in Scripture seeing verses like these. You see, one of the things the devil wants us to be convinced of is that God is not the author of sex, but that he's the author of it. No, he's the perverter of it, but God is the creator of it. You see, in marriage, sex is designed to be safe, where you're able to share all your vulnerabilities with someone else. To be naked is to be fully exposed. It's to be embarrassed. It's to trust someone. 
You see, in marriage, it's something that is designed to serve someone else rather than to gratify your own flesh and desires. And in marriage, of course, it's designed to, at times, lead to a family and the safety for children to grow up in a home with a loving father and mother who are committed to each other rather than to live in the danger of something outside of that because their parents would not commit to each other. And it seems that God has even designed the sexual act between a husband and wife as a glue that holds them together and rebinds them together over and over and over again. That's what happens in the brain and the body puts them together in a powerful way. No, it is one of God's greatest inventions. It has been perverted in the world that we live in, but God has designed it because it is lovely, it is good, it is wonderful. And what he warns is simply this. Make sure that impurity or defilement is not brought into that marriage bed. You see, when you light a fire in your fireplace, that's where that fire belongs. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't start a fire in the middle of your living room. You wouldn't start a fire on the floor of your kitchen. No, there's a place where it belongs, where it's healthy and good and strong. Don't invite impurity into your married sexual union. Don't bring in pornography or lust or abuse or neglect or atrophy into your marriage. So this is a powerful exhortation from the author. But I'm going to move on to the final exhortation in verse 5 and 6 so that we can wrap up our time together, where he talks to us about money, about contentment. He says, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, and this is from Joshua 1.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, and this is from Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? All right, so we've talked about a lot this morning. We've looked at hospitality, remembering the prisoner, talked about keeping the marriage bed undefiled, honoring marriage, respecting it. But here he talks about living a life that is, notice how he says it there, keep your life free from the love of money. When I read that, what, I, what I'm sensing from the author is this is a constant battle. I don't know how many of you have a yard at your house, but I have a little yard at my house, and one constant battle that exists is the battle with weeds. And I know they're going to be there all the time. I know there's never a season that they're going to uh, take off and just say, you know, we're not this year. We're not going to grow. No, they're always going to be there. They're they're always going to you know spread, and they're they're going to take constant maintenance to make sure that they don't overwhelm my property. And sometimes I'm more successful than at others. And this seems to be that kind of idea that the love of money it exists. It's there. You get over it one day. You weed it out of your heart one day. And the next day, it might need maintenance once again. There might be something that sparks within your mind or heart that causes you to enter into not having money, but a love for money in that, in that moment. And so it requires a constant maintenance in our lives. Now, the word love 
indicates that this has to do with our hearts. You see, you can fall in love with money and be broke as a joke. You could, be, you could fall in love with money and have 10 lifetimes of finances in your bank account. He's not talking to the wealthy, and he's not talking to the impoverished. He's talking to humans. And he's saying, no matter what your state, you could fall into the danger of the love of money. Now, I'm going to make a little confession here. I think for most of my pastoral life, the way I've taught about money is I've said, it's one of those things in Scripture that is morally neutral. That's kind of the party line. It's a morally neutral thing. In other words, you could use money for good or you could use money for evil, but in it in and of itself is actually a neutral thing. I'm actually, I don't know that I've, I'm convinced, but I'm, I'm kind of landing on a different view or perspective in recent years. I, I'm starting to think that money is actually a morally good thing that we then can use for evil, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. Money is one of those things that because human beings have created it and the system around it, we are above the animal kingdom in part because of that. You know, I don't have to go to my house and plant corn and food and all these different things, partly because we've created a monetary system whereby we can care for each other, buy and sell goods, and we can improve our lives. So it seems to be a, a good thing. You can provide for others, help other people. It establishes community. It's something that we can use to glorify God. Wayne Grudem in his book called Business for the Glory of God said this. He said, money provides many opportunities to glorify God through investing and expanding our stewardship and thus imitating God's sovereignty and wisdom, through meeting our own needs and thus imitating God's independence, through giving to others and thus imitating God's mercy and love, or through giving to the church and to evangelism and thus bringing others into the kingdom. So we can use it for all these great good uh, and wonderful things, yet because money carries so much power and so much value, it's a heavy responsibility, and it presents constant temptations to sin. So we're warned. Watch out for the love, though, of money. So what are some tools that we can use to keep ourselves from the love of money? Well, he gives us two in this passage. The first is contentment. Be content. He says, verse 5, be content with what you have. You guys, contentment is one of those things that it can solve a lot of your problems like right now. You know, I'll just give an example. I don't know if this will relate to anybody, but, you know, just a cheesy example. But let's say you're sitting there in your house and you're like, I got to get this piece of furniture. I got to get this TV and I got to get this thing. Like, it's got to happen. Saving up for it. I need the 55 inch. It's going to be great. I'm going to use it. Nate, you talk about hospitality. I'm going to use it for the Lord and hospitality. You know, like, it's going to happen. And there's a pressure that comes. I got I to gotta save for that. I got to be able to afford that. I, I, you know, I, I don't, I, it's, it's expensive or whatever. And you could be feeling like, oh, man, I don't know, like I'm just feeling this financial crunch and pressure and all of that, and you're feeling all this anxiety over money. What would happen, though, if you just said, you know what? My 25-inch TV, it works. It's good. I'm going to keep that. You just made like 500 bucks right there. You see, contentment is so often 
a great aid to combating the love of money. Paul learned it in Philippians 4, verse 11, which we'll get into at the end of the summer, where he said, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. If you, have, if you struggle to be content, you're always like, man, I need more, I need more, and you just have a hard time accepting what you have today. I want to hold out a facet of God's nature for you that I think might help set you free. And it's the doctrine of the goodness of God. You see, if you can set your mind upon the doctrine of the goodness of God, where where does that come from? It comes from the idea that God is perfect and that he doesn't do anything wrong. And so often discontentment stems from thinking God has done something wrong. God has kept something good from me. But when you meditate on the doctrine of the goodness of God, even if someone else has and you don't have, it might help you say, God is good. And so he's given me what is right for me. All right, so be content. Easier said than done, but it's part of what he's instructing us in. And then also another thing that we get from the Lord to help us with the love of money is God's faithfulness. Notice there in verse five and six, he says, God said this thing to, to uh, Joshua, and now we can say, like Psalm 118, the Lord has been faithful to me. You have to remember the faithfulness of the Lord. I know I've told this story before, but it's a fun story that I like telling. But I remember when I was first in my early days of walking with the Lord, and I had a job, I was making $500 a month. And I had an old 1983 Volvo sedan, and it was just an ugly, you know, oxidized paint, and I mean, it was just terrible. Stuff was falling off of this thing left and right, but that was my car, and uh, I was tithing, you know, writing that, you know, $50 check every, every month, you know, and, and, uh, and it was, you know, when you're making $500 a month, that's painful, but I felt called to do it. And one day my car stopped running and I took it in and, or it was running funny. I brought it in and they said, well, you, you know, you need a catalytic converter. That's going to be for these, you know, European cars. It's going to be $500, you know? And I'm like, that's how much I make in a month. You know, I'm thinking that in my mind, like, how am I going to afford this? So I just asked them, like, is there anything else we could do, you know? Like, I'm thinking, like, looking with this, like, something we could pour in there, you know, or <laughs> like something. <laughs> and uh, he's like, no, well, the only thing I could think of is if you, if you could, if you know anybody who could cut out the catalytic converter first and then bring it in, then that'll save a lot of labor costs, you know. So I found a friend who had the right gear, and we got under the car, you know, and he took his life in his own hands, and he cut that thing out for me. And I went into the mechanic, and it was still going to be like $350. And so I dropped it off and, and uh, came back a few hours later, and the mechanic came out, and he said, you know, I, I got some bad news for you. You know, I, I fixed it. It works. You got a new catalytic converter in there. Yeah, it's working great. But, well, once I finished, I parked it, and my partner, when he pulled out a car he was working on, he backed into your front fender, you know. And I looked at it, and it was just this teeny little, like, you know, I could live with that. It was already an ugly car. And he said, what I need you to do is take the car around the corner. There's an auto body shop. 
uh, ask them how much it's going to be to fix it, and then just come back here, and I'm going to I'm going to give you that in cash. I went around the corner. I forget what it was. I think it was like $350 or $500. It covered the whole price of what it was going to take. And I went back and said, well, they said, you know, $350 or five, whatever it was. You know, and I was like, I mean, look at the car. Like, you know I'm not going to paint this, right? You know, and he's like, yeah, that's fine, but I got to do this. And he gave me the money, and he said, and by the way, the job's on me. You know, and I, I drove out of there, and I just felt like a millionaire, and this line, verse 6, is what I was able to say. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So I'm just going to close right now without the worship team in prayer and lead you in praying for these categories in your own life. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.